0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at bethemanuel.org. If you enjoy these studies from the Gospels, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at bethemanuel.org. A young disciple wrote to me once and asked me, where can I find Yeshua's halachic guidance? I said, try the New Testament. He replied, it doesn't, it doesn't answer the questions I have. Why? because he was asking the wrong questions. Yeshua told us that he had not come to change the Torah, neither the written Torah of Moses, nor the tradition that came to be known as the oral Torah. Neither did he come to change Jewish law. The apostles did not leave us halakhic instructions. We might wish that they had, but they didn't feel that they needed to do so except for a few points concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles. Otherwise, the halakha already existed, and they were not interested in reinventing the wheel. They did not write epistles about the correct way to separate seeds, or the immersion of vessels for ritual purity, or how to intercalate the calendar or determine the new moon, or how many blasts of the trumpet to sound on Rosh Hashanah, or how to build a proper sukkah, or whether or not to separate poultry and dairy, or how to set aside a tithe, or any such thing. If you come to the New Testament looking for that type of information, you will be disappointed. Why is that? Why didn't Yeshua and the apostles teach those type of practical instructions and rules for Torah observance? Why didn't they leave us their own version of the Mishnah? Because that wasn't their job. The Messiah did not come to overturn Jewish authority or supplant Jewish tradition. It's a silly assumption of replacement theology that Yeshua and the apostles were scrapping Judaism and starting over fresh. They didn't write legal material because there was already a legal system in place. They didn't write halakha. There already was plenty of halakha. To understand the New Testament, you have to remove the false impression that it's in competition with Judaism. Once you do that, you're in a better position to see what Yeshua really did bring to the table. He brought a new vintage of wine he described his teaching as new wine. He sought disciples to be new wineskins into whom he could pour the new wine. He knew that the disciples of the Torah scholars would not receive his teaching because they were already full of old wine and tasting the new wine, they would say, the old is better. So what's the new wine of Yeshua's teaching? To be sure, it's his message about the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it would be a complete mistake to suppose that he was just an end-times nutter talking eschatology and making predictions about the apocalypse. Instead, his message had a strong imperative, which could be described as musar, a word that means instruction or self-discipline. I can best illustrate the character of the new wine Yeshua brings to the table with a saying of the master. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the Torah, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Matthew 23:23 23, 23 through24. This is one of the sayings of the Master that gets a lot of play in a Messianic Jewish context. Usually it gets brought out when we are confronted with a halakhic rule or scruple of Jewish law which seems gratuitous. We misuse the passage to deflect some Jewish practice we dislike on the basis that it's not one of the weighty matters of the Torah. For example, I understand that keeping kosher is important for Jews, but is it really necessary to check every leaf of that lettuce with a magnifying glass? Shouldn't they be more concerned with the weighty matters of the Torah? It creates a false dichotomy, which is sort of a rhetorical showstopper because it presents religious observance and ethical obligations as an either-or choice, implying you must choose one or the other. You must choose to be concerned with the details of, relig- of religious halakha, min ha'chum ceremony, and custom, or you can give attention to the serious ethical concerns of the Torah. But you cannot do both. When you put it that way, it's a rhetorical showstopper because you can't really argue, I think we should be more concerned with Kashrut than justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Who's going to argue like that? It's a false dichotomy. Yeshua does not present the criticism as an either-or proposition. Instead, he says, You tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are things you should have done without neglecting the others. The significance of tithing mint, dill, and cumin is that all three are measures of piety beyond the written Torah. The written Torah mandates a tithe on grain, wine, and oil grown in the land of Israel. The Mishnah confirms that both dill and cumin were subject to laws of tithing by oral Torah. The Evan Zohar, Rabbi Lichtenstein explains, The tithe of herbs was merely a rabbinic decree, but they made it a serious matter by reckoning them as food. In that regard, tithing garden herbs before using them might not be considered the most urgent matter of the Torah, but it was a legitimate matter nonetheless. Those types of halakhic concerns which circle around minutia to the point of absurdity might appear trivial, but Yeshua said, these are the things you should have done. That's a strong endorsement. Something like that may have been among the least of the commandments, but Yeshua taught his disciples that the one who annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.19. The criticism is not a criticism of hyper-religious fanaticism or strict observance of the halachic rules. Such a critique may have also been in order, but that's not his point here. Instead, he criticizes the religious leaders for disregarding the weightier provisions of the Torah, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, while investing their focus and attention on matters of less relevance to real godliness. This saying of the master alludes to a rabbinic story about the relationship between Isaac and Esau in the Torah. We learn that Esau loved Isaac while Rebekah loved Jacob. And this raises the question, how is it that righteous Isaac preferred wicked Esau over godly Jacob, the one destined to receive the inheritance and the one that the Torah refers to as a perfect man? The sages explain that Isaac's blindness was, in some sense, a manifestation of his blindness to Esau's real character. The Torah explains that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Isaac loved the wild game that Esau trapped and brought home. Literally, the verse says that Isaac loved Esau, ki that is, because trapping was in his mouth. The Midrash Rabbah understands this to mean something other than just the taste of venison. Rabbi Abahu suggests that the trapping in his mouth should be understood as Esau's deceit of Isaac. Rabbi Abahu said, He was a hunter and fieldsman, hunting at home and hunting in the field. He hunted at home by asking, How do you tithe salt? And he hunted in the field by asking, how do you tithe straw? So Esau duped Isaac into believing that he was a righteous son concerned with matters of Torah. He caught his father in the trap of his words. Isaac loved him because he thought he was a godly man. In his excellent anthology, the Midrash says Moshe Weissman paraphrases as follows. One of Esau's devices was to ask his father detailed questions about the observance of the commandments. Father, I have a problem, he announced. What is it? Isaac asked him. How do you separate the tithe from salt or straw? By his question, Esau meant to imply, falsely of course, that he had fulfilled the commandments to a greater degree than is required because tithes need not be set aside from salt and straw. Esau uttered with his lips the opposite of what he thought in his heart. Thus, Esau hid his wickedness and tricked everyone into believing that he was in reality righteous. Likewise, the hypocritical of the master's day attempted to prove their piety by going beyond the Torah's basic requirements. Yeshua applauded their concern for detail, but he rebuked them for ignoring the weightier matters of the Torah, which he summarizes as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. By tithing even their spices, the Pharisees and scribes demonstrated acute concern for seemingly inconsequential requirements of the Torah. In so doing, they could be compared to a man who carefully strained out the gnat from his wine, but swallowed the camel. The adage refers to straining wine through a cloth to remove insects and sediments. The Torah's dietary laws forbid Jews from ingesting ritually unclean insects. The master's adage suggests a situation in which a person so obsesses with straining the gnats from his wine that he fails to notice the main course of forbidden camel meat. In the adage, the gnats correspond to the small ceremonial concerns. The camel refers to the weighty matters of the Torah. Both the gnat and the camel are unkosher and unfit for consumption, but the latter is much larger. I didn't grow up in a litigious religion. In the type of church I was raised, we had an absolutely allergic reaction to anything that smacked of the ceremonial, the liturgical, the sacramental, or the ritual. We shunned the traditions of men and considered ourselves pious for doing so. If Yeshua had come to our church, If Yeshua had come to our church, he would not have found us guilty of tithing our mint, dill, and cumin, nor would he have found us engrossed in other legal details of observance. But in that world, the microscope of religious concern is focused on purity of doctrine, theology, dogma, soteriology, and Christology. In other words, focused on believing the right things so that you will go to heaven when you die. I can hear our master's voice rebuking those churches. Woe to you, theologians and pastors, hypocrites, for while you exegete the Greek, ward off heresies, and save many souls, you have neglected the weightier provisions, justice, mercy, and faithfulness we find an obsession with doctrines, with systems of biblical exegesis, with creeds, systematic theologies, theological purity, and pure dogma, fueled in part by fear of hell, memories of the inquisitions, or being burned at the stake, but also fueled by the natural human tendency to focus on the periphery of spiritual truth while neglecting the things that are essential. In other words, it's easier to build a religion and religious identity out of doctrinal purity and being right than it is to build it out of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's easier. It's a lot easier. The human mind loves puzzles. Halakhic discourse is a puzzle. It can focus the attention the same way a chess game or a crossword puzzle might do so. The same is true for theological discourse and the esoteric riddle games of mysticism which love to build complex castles and palaces in the air. The mind finds it easy to obsess on the details and relationships, fixate on minute rules and equations, and elevate those things above more legitimate concerns. We get obsessed with all sorts of things because our minds love to get tangled up in these constructions and explore their details and make connections and new discoveries. It's what we are wired to do. That's why we get lost in the trees and miss the forest. Yeshua wants to remind us not to lose sight of what's important. When I first started teaching with First Fruits of Zion, I went on the road with Boaz Michael presenting a seminar about Yeshua's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and how he demanded an internalization of the Torah's standards, which does not rely merely on the external signs of piety like Sabbath observance, biblical festivals, dietary concerns, and religious apparel. It wasn't popular. I remember that. One night in Montana, someone chided us, we already know all this simple stuff. Get to the deep Torah stuff. One night in Colorado, someone wrote us a note and said, Quit with the New Testament teaching and get back to your first love, Torah. Ironically, the Sermon on the Mount is the Master's teaching on the Torah. But in those days, many of those people who were excited about the Torah and the Hebrew roots of their faith didn't want to hear anything other than how all the Sunday-keeping, pork-eating Christians were wrong. They wanted to hear affirmations for wearing tzitzit and prayer shawls. They wanted to be told that those things made them better than the Christians in the churches that they had just left. They made their tzitzit long, and they would have made their tefillin broad too if they didn't believe that the tefillin were actually a tradition of men that distorted the intention of the commandment. Boaz said to them, "You think it's hard to keep kosher or to observe the Sabbath? That's the easy stuff. Try loving your neighbor as yourself. Try keeping your tongue from speaking lashon hara." Anyone who has ever lived in a Jewish community already knows that it's easy to look pious on the outside, Anyone who has ever been part of a church knows it too. It's easy to dress the part, act the role, talk the talk, say the right things, wear the right things, all the while concealing a completely unconverted and unredeemed heart. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Our master pronounced woes over what he called the hypocrites of his day. The word hypocrite means actor. Yeshua used the word to refer to anyone who likes to put on a religious show to garner the attention and admiration of others. But he also used the word to refer to those who employed their apparent piety to mask their ungodliness. People who experience a tragedy, people who suffer a loss, people who go through a life-threatening trauma, people who have a near-death experience and come back from the other side— all report the same thing. They always say, you realize what's really important in life. I spent all my time focusing on stuff that doesn't actually matter. If only I could do it all over again, I'd focus on the stuff that matters. That's what people say. That's what Yeshua is asking us to do. He asks us to realize what's really important in the Torah. He gives us three words, Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But all of his teachings are the outworking of those three words. All of his teachings are attempting to shake us and wake us to the weighty matters of the Torah. Justice, that is mishpat. The word mishpat means justice and judgment. In the biblical sense, justice is more than simply punishing the guilty and exonerating the innocent. It also includes social justice looking toward the needs of the disenfranchised the poor the widow and the orphan it requires impartiality withholding judgment and extending the benefit of the doubt to others it calls for defending the defenseless and fighting against the victimization of the innocent the torah says justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live deuteronomy 1620 in terms of the master's teachings The commandments of justice fall under the heading of love your neighbor as yourself. Mercy, that is chesed. The Hebrew word chesed translates into English Bibles as loving kindness or mercy. It also implies fidelity to one's covenant obligations. Yeshua used it in the sense of demonstrating compassion for other human beings. He offered the parable of the Good Samaritan as an example of a man who demonstrated chesed. And he often quoted Hosea 6 6 to establish that chesed should take priority over ritual concern. I delight in chesed rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Again, in terms of the Master's teachings, the commandments of chesed fall under the heading of. Love your neighbor as yourself. Faithfulness, Emunah. The Hebrew word Emunah implies loyalty. The scriptures describe God's faithfulness toward his people when he acts on their behalf. Man reciprocates with faithfulness to God. Man's faithfulness consists of obedience and singular dedication to the Lord. The Torah says, Now, Israel, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. In terms of the master's teachings, the commandments of faithfulness fall under the heading of love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. All of Yeshua's teachings could probably be categorized under one of these three headings, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is the type of repentance that Yeshua came seeking. He did not offer rebukes for for the people's failure to adhere to one custom or another, to one detail of a halakhic code or another. All of his rebukes concerned matters of integrity, matters of the heart, matters of character, matters of conduct toward one another. He did not need to teach the laws of ritual purity. He needed to cleanse lepers. He did not reproach anyone for failing to keep the laws of family purity. He reproached them for adulterous hearts and frivolous divorces. He did not teach the details of tithing. He taught the value and merit of extravagant giving and renouncing one's possessions. The teachings of Yeshua and the apostles are more in line with what has come to be called Musar teaching in Jewish circles. In the introduction to the classic book of Musar, Chovot Halavavot, Rabbi Bachia describes looking for a book about the inward duties of personal self-improvement and finding none. Though he could find something pertaining to every imaginable field of halakhic discourse and many books about mystical ideas, he could find no single work that addressed personal ethical responsibilities and the duties of the heart. He thought, Perhaps those issues were not important, and perhaps they were so obvious that there was no need to study them. But when he looked into the scriptures, he found that they were at the center of biblical concern in the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, and he found that they were not at all obvious, but rather counterintuitive and required detailed attention and serious study. So he wrote his book on this subject. He even admits to utilizing the wisdom he found in non-Jewish sources to assemble his thoughts and elucidate his arguments. One suspects the New Testament was among those sources. Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine with me that history had taken a different course and that rather than a split between Judaism and Christianity, Yeshua faith and Yeshua's teachings had remained within Judaism as part of the mix. Imagine how the basic core teachings of Yeshua and the apostles would have been preserved and handled with care by the Jewish community, not unlike the way the teachings of the sages have been passed down and elucidated. Imagine how those teachings might have been collected and collated into a codex like the Mishnah and expanded upon with argumentation and discussion such as we find in the Gemara, a veritable Talmud on the New Testament. What if we had a tractate called justice, a tractate called mercy, and a tractate called faithfulness? What if they were taught in the cheder and yeshiva students were required to complete all three before graduation as a prerequisite for ordination? How would Judaism look different today? And how would we look different today? How would that type of emphasis on the weighty matters impact us? How would halakhic priorities And our personal priorities look different. I suspect that if the emphasis was placed on the weighty matters, things would look entirely different. One of the criticisms most often voiced by those on the outside of Judaism, and also those from the inside who leave it, is this misplaced emphasis on the perfunctory and litigious detail while missing the weighty matters. Jewish Christians often tell me that they left Judaism because it was just rules and Hebrew language and it never meant anything to them. That's a terrible failure. How might their experience in the synagogue have been different if the emphasis had fallen on the weighty matters rather than the periphery? Let's do another thought experiment. Imagine with me that the Gentile church had understood Yeshua's message and instead of putting all of its emphasis on sacraments for the attaining of eternal life and all of its emphasis on going to heaven and avoiding hell, it had placed its emphasis on the actual teachings and words of the Messiah and the New Testament. If instead of fighting over creeds and the meaning of the Eucharist and conflict over baptisms and ecclesiastical offices, the church had put its efforts into teaching the practice of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. What if every Sunday school did three-year rotations where they focused on one of these three categories per year? What if seminary students could not become ordained ministers unless they proved their competence in teaching and administering justice, mercy, and faithfulness? What if instead of burning each other at the stake or hunting each other down in inquisitions, the church had been busy establishing institutions of justice, teaching mercy, and inculcating its people with faithfulness? I can picture monasteries dedicated to the laws of justice, abbeys focused on the practice of mercy, and evangelists spreading the message of faithfulness. How would the church look different today? How would her reputation be different? What if those were the three spiritual laws that we shared with others? Once again, I suspect that if the emphasis was placed on the weighty matters, things would look entirely different. One of the reasons people so hate the church and religion in general is that we intuitively feel the wrongness of emphasizing the wrong things while neglecting the weighty matters. In the modern era, it's no longer possible to hold people captive with sheer dogmatism. And the entire structure is seen to be built upon a charade of faulty premises, spiritual mumbo-jumbo, and lofty rhetoric which places all the emphasis on things that, frankly, nobody much cares about any longer, if they ever did. In defense of Judaism, and in defense of the Church, I must state that there is a terrific amount of emphasis on justice, mercy, and faithfulness. If you know where to look for it, if you know where to look for it. Judaism is all about justice and establishing a just and equitable society for everyone. The Jewish community invests heavily in institutions of mercy, like hospitals and charitable organizations. And the Hasidic movement wrote the book on faithfulness, Likewise, the church has championed justice every step of the way. Western culture can thank the church for the justice system that demands the same justice for every person, regardless of race, creed, or class, and social norms that value human life and personal dignity. All these things come from the Bible. And the church does teach faithfulness whether Ignatian reflection, Eastern Orthodox asceticism, German pietism, or the born-again movement of evangelicalism, these are all voices calling for faithfulness. So it's completely unfair of me to say that these religions have failed to attend to these matters. But if placed in the scale of balance, have we assigned these matters the weight that the scriptures give them? And if you're concerned about distinction theology, or you're a proponent of one-law theology, this is a place where we can agree. The Torah's weighty matters, the Torah's laws of justice, of mercy, and faithfulness apply equally across the board to both the Jewish and Gentile disciples of our Master. Where do we find Rabbi Yeshua's halakhic guidance? Try the New Testament. If it doesn't answer the questions we have, it might be that we are asking the wrong questions. Yeshua considers justice, mercy, and faithfulness to be the weighty matters of the Torah because the Torah is primarily about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. As we prepare to receive the Torah anew, let's assign those aspects of God's revelation their appropriate weight. Maybe the Torah was never meant to be primarily about splitting hairs and straining gnats. We shouldn't neglect hair splitting and gnat straining. I don't suggest we endorse drinking beverages with bugs. Who wants to drink gnats? Let's strain out the gnats. But let's check our hearts to make sure that our piety is not a disguise intended to conceal Esau's real character from Isaac. Let's make sure we are not swallowing camels. Take on my yoke. And learn from me and find rest for your soul.